This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on New Books Network. Today, I'm joined by Dagmar Schaefer, Annapurna Mamidipudi, and Marius Booning, editors of Ownership of Knowledge Beyond Intellectual Property, published by MIT Press in 2023. Scholars of science, technology, medicine, and law have all tended to emphasize knowledge as the sum of human understanding and its ownership as possession by law. Breaking with traditional discourse on knowledge property as something that concerns mainly words and intellectual history or science and law, ownership of knowledge beyond intellectual property proposes technology as a central heuristic for studying the many implications of knowledge ownership. Toward this end, this book focuses on the notions of knowledge and ownership in courtrooms, workshops, policy, and research practices, while also shedding light on scholarship itself as a powerful tool for making explicit the politics inherent in knowledge practices and social order. Dagmar, Annapurna, and Marius, welcome to New Books Network. And before we turn to talking about your book, I would love if each of you could introduce yourselves, maybe, you know, what your interests are, um, your research interests, and what your education journey has been and and where you're currently based. Uh, Dagmar, if you'd like to start. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Uh, And thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to introduce our book to your community. So my name is Dagmar Schäfer. I am actually a historian of technology and sinology by training, so Chinese studies. Uh, And uh, from that perspective, uh, I've started to look into the history of science. Um, that's basically all I can say. And that's how I actually became interested also in the question of ownership and knowledge, both because there is, uh, I think, something that historians contribute to it and that they are actually not aware of. And because as a historian of science, I'm very interested in the dynamics of knowledge dissemination in general. Super. Thank you. Annapurna, would you like to go next? Yeah, hi. So I trained as an engineer and worked in an NGO for many years, working with craftspeople, mostly handloom weavers, and uh, then went on to um, uh, do a PhD in STS, uh, talking about handloom weaving as a kind of socio-technology. And since I work a lot with people who are very knowledgeable, but are not seen as being knowledgeable, but having labor. Um, I was looking for, I I found a community in uh, historians of technology and historians of science because because their subjects are also craftspeople in many ways. So I found it easy to talk to them. So so that's how I come to be here. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Um, Marius. Uh, hi, I'm an assistant professor of early modern history at the University of Oslo, where I mainly work on the uh, history of intellectual property rights in early modern Europe. 
And um, I guess I'm interested in the um, transformative impact that um, the law has as a switching point between uh, knowledge production and processes of uh, state formation. Fantastic. Thanks. Uh, so then I guess turning to this new book, Ownership of Knowledge, I'm really curious about how this project came to be and um, what the what the main goals were that you had for this book. And Annapurna, maybe we could start with you. Well, um, it started for, for me with a project that was already ongoing with between uh, with Dagmar and Marius. They were talking about intellectual property, going beyond intellectual property. And we had a conference to which uh, I was also invited. And there were legal historians and there were other scholars who actually were looking at different regimes of knowledge ownership. And it seemed it was quite clear that these two communities were not communicating to each other. And um, so um, uh, I think all three of us were concerned about that. And so, but we had very different entry points. Mine was that, yeah, these people don't get it. We have to tell them what it's all about. <laughs> and then uh, I, I wrote to Dagmar and she said, well, then come on over and let's get together and... Um, see what we can do about that conversation. So that's where it started for me. Amazing. Dagmar, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your perspective on, on how all of that started. Yeah, thank you. I mean, actually, it started with uh, Annapurna and me sitting across each other in a glass, uh, glass office business building and uh, realizing that we were all both were working very hard and had something in common. And uh, we only realized after having a couple of conversations where this common interest actually was, namely in the way in which uh, we are workers uh, are on knowledge, or like we think about knowledge communities a lot. And uh, we were both very frustrated in the way in which it is discussed and ownership is taken from people uh, through our work. Yeah, so that we are kind of also responsible for it. And so how do you actually stop that as a historian, as an NGO worker, as somebody who looks at the sciences from law? And uh, actually, I think the idea took form um, as I tried to force Annapurna on a bicycle and take a ride to uh, through, uh, like across, like basically along the Michigan uh, lake. Yeah? And uh, I think that's where the, the idea really began to yeah, to thrive. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Marius, I'm curious how you um, yeah, took can, part in the start of this. Yeah. I can only follow up on, uh, agree with what the, the other said. So I, I, I normally work with, um, I guess, um, people, um, historians of law or people really work on the legal aspects of things. And then um, during this conference and also afterwards, we were talking a lot about how to challenge that narrative. Um, and how to go indeed beyond intellectual property. Um, and yeah, that, that's how it all got started. And I think what interests me most was also the political aspect of the political stance of the scholar in all this. So what's the role of us as scholars in this discussion? Um, and, and then I just rolled along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, and I know we will get to to talking about the role of scholars, but um, 
in the preface and the first chapter, you've laid out this foundation for the rest of the book. And so first, uh, you write about the concept of what is knownable, tying together what is knowable and what's ownable. And then you present a theoretical chapter that explores how we can understand all the different ways that knowledge is made property. So could you speak a little more about how you arrived at this idea of the knownable and then explain the foundation that your theoretical framework lays out? I'm not sure which of you wants to um, which wants to start on that. Well, I know for sure that it was Dagmar who first said knownable. So I think you should answer this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not entirely sure if I can actually um, really get that together again. But I think uh, the example in the introduction of our book at least very much summarizes it for me. So this this idea of whether you ride a bicycle or whether you, you do something as a scientist or a craftsman, there are always these three sides or like these many facets of knowing something with your body, through your mind, through your hands, right? You need, if you really comprehend something, so Chinese philosophy, he says, if it's innate, then you have to really grasp it. You have to be able to reiterate it, right? To, to put it into words, to, to, to perform it, right? So to have all these facets directly at your hands. And so that's when you really have knowledge. So you have it. And then you give it away to somebody else. Like when I tried to convince Annapurna to ride with the bike, right? Even though she, I think she mentioned at one point, like I'm not riding the bike, but she made it, right? So she performs it. She has the bicycle. She uses the instrument. You are you, uh, you have a materiality to what you actually know with your body, right? It's like all these things are actually there. And, and that's when you are able to know. And then it's when you're able to know, you're also able to own it and to give it away and to share it with somebody else. So I think the enlightenment trap is somehow, that's where I had this awareness of recognition of like, so we have it, but we think having it and owning it and giving it away are two things. How can that actually be? And why are we actually doing that? And I think that's where the insight was born that there is something really very strange in the way in which we always fragment knowledge and, and always know how to emphasize these different fragments of having knowledge. Why are we doing that when we know that knowledge is such a comprehensive category? Maybe you guys can fill in. <laughs> I hope this was not too philosophical. That was really helpful. Yeah, if one of you would like to add to that, yeah. Um, I think that, uh, so um, Dagmar always starts with the knownable. <laughs> and I always start with the knowable and the ownable and then try and say, well, it's, it's not really fitting, you know, and, and this has been a constant uh, way for us to refine, uh, you know, what we mean by the knownable, which actually emerge very strongly from the each of the cases. So you have, uh, you know, every one of those cases fits very nicely into um, how people actually manipulate the knownable into turning into the knowable and the ownable. And uh, for myself, I have a very uh, clear place from which what is considered having knowledge and what is considered owning knowledge uh, just don't fit 
with craftspeople. So you, you have the knowledge of weaving a particular motif, but you don't own the right to weave it because it's cultural property and anybody can weave it. So, so you've created this, this regime that we have of knowledge ownership doesn't actually fit um, their way of the knownable. So that's a very clear position from which I could look or look for the knownable from knowing that it exists, but it's being fragmented. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Marius, is there anything that you want to add to that in the framework that came out there? No, not really. I think it was uh, well put. I mean, um, I think for me, um, it's, 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 it's a, it essentially boils down to something very simple that, that we often talk of, of of even objects or whatever it is as, as being either owned or or known. And, and we tend to neglect the other side. So one cannot talk about something, uh, an, an object, for instance, and just by talking about ownership without discussing its epistemology and vice versa. Um, so it's it's a very funny, straightforward uh, uh, logic, so to say, um, that the two are always intrinsically linked. And I hope that this book shows that as well to readers and the scholarly community as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It asks us to like remember the whole, um, the whole spectrum of that. So then chapters two through 10 of this book present a variety of case studies by several contributors. And I don't want to ask any of you to speak on behalf of those contributors, although if there's um, contributions you'd like to highlight, please do. Uh, but you also wrote or co-authored some of these case studies, and I thought we could maybe focus on those. Um, in the first section, looking at knowledge ownership within book publishing. Marius, your chapter here explores how our current framework of intellectual property has developed. So could you share some of that history with listeners and uh, some of the biases and assumptions that you point out this historic narrative is relying on? Sure. Um, so what I did in, 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 that, in that case study was to look at the way in which um, law students are being taught the history of intellectual property law. So I looked at the selection of textbooks that are used at universities, and especially at the rhetorical strategies that are uh, being used to create a sort of continuity between past and present. And um, well, one of the things I found, for instance, is that that actually the way that that story is being told very much resembles the way in which, uh, borrowing a bit from uh, narratology, uh, the way in which in which um, um, uh, fairy tales are told. So there's a sort of a stable situation, then there are external forces that change the situation, and then we end up in a new stable situation. Uh, and that's the way that that history is, is, is being plotted out. Um, well, what surprised me is that, therefore, there's a certain aspects that have more emphasis and others less so. So there's this sort of natural expansion of the law, if you read those books, um, essentially the story of you know how we became modern. Um, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense from a legal perspective. So, I mean, these are, these are all, all very good books written by excellent scholars that are, are teaching law students that have this very specific function. But I guess I was still surprised about this 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 divide between uh, what Maitland called um, the logic of history and the logic of the law. So historians want to see things in, their, in its context, whereas lawyers actually only are interested or tend to be interested in the present. And history is just a stepping stone for modernity. Um, 
and uh, yeah, well, that that impacts a lot the way in which we think of what can be owned. So this is not just a story of ownership of knowledge, but also the knowledge of ownership, so to say. Um, and and that's what I wanted to point out in this um, uh, article, or that's what I wanted to study in this uh, chapter. Yeah, and it's so interesting to you know take that back to how we are teaching people, like this examination mm -hmm. of textbooks. I found that really, really fascinating. Um, and then the second group of case studies looks at different practices that are used to authorize knowing and owning with examples ranging from textile creation uh, to grade school science experiments. And Annapurna, I would love if you could speak about the chapter you co-authored here with Viren Murti about performance practice of contemporary classical music in South India. Uh, I really love how you point out that raga is a form of knowledge. So I could, I would love if you could share about this example and um, those conclusions you arrived at and how all of this exemplifies practice and social context as a legitimate way of owning knowledge. Okay. I was saying that I would like to start a little bit with the section that we have there because we actually introduced the three practices of knowledge ownership um, uh, in that section. And the point is that we think of them usually as uh, ways of knowing, but what we are really putting forward here is that they are also ways of owning knowledge. So if we have these three uh, material instantiations, the word, body, and object, and uh, we are talking particularly in this section about how knowledge is, uh, how knowledge works when it's predominantly working, uh, authorized by naming. Uh, and when it's authorized uh, in an object, the ownership, or when in a body. And of course, all the cases have all three together because that's how it works. But this helps us to kind of look at how, you know, different regimes actually work. So if you're someone who's working with objects, then the, uh, you know, the case about the, uh, you know, the object, the Java batik would make more sense for example. And, um, you know, if you're um, more interested in what happens with pedagogy in a classroom, then Amy Slayton's case is, is, is really good for that. I mean, it it's really communicates. So um, the thing with the music chapter, of course, I wrote it with my co-author, Viren. And there's a raging controversy right now in the music world, in the Carnatic music world, about the dominance of a particular caste group who seem to have, who are now, some of them accusing themselves of having appropriated that knowledge. And, but even in that debate, there is a clear problem of uh, separating the knowable and the ownable. So uh, Viren and I wondered how that case would look like if we said, well, um, you know, if the, if the knowledge is performed as music is, then the ownership is through performance. You you perform what you know, and that's how you have that knowledge. Uh, then the knowledge is located in bodies and relationships, right? So the way in which it will operate, the inclusion and the exclusion will happen through how bodies include and exclude. So uh, you you belong to a certain caste or to a certain club, and by social inclusion, you can also include epistemically or 
you exclude socially and you've created epistemic exclusion. So that's what we were trying to show in that case. Yeah, thank you. And I think that, yeah, that tension um, between ownership and knowledge was really, really apparent to me there. And um, folks who might not claim ownership, um, having space maybe to recognize that there is ownership that comes along with their knowledge. Um, yeah, asks a lot of interesting questions of us. Um, and then moving to the third group of case studies, these explore how domains of society and economy have consequences for knowledge ownership. And Dagmar, you wrote here um, a, a chapter of, that looks at ownership of craft knowledge in pre-modern China. What types of practices existed at this time for legitimizing and owning knowledge? And how did those practices work to um, shift and build or erase power? How did naming become a way to regulate craft work? Yes, absolutely. I think it's the piece why Annapurna always says like names are so important for historians of China because the literati, so the scholars actually name everything and that's because they can name it, they can actually own what they know. And I wanted to emphasize how this in Chinese history has been mobilized over centuries uh, and also meant that uh, in, in Chinese history, you don't find really copyright laws, right? So there's a very popular book uh, by William Alford saying, like, to steal a book is an elegant offense. Uh, I think Cynthia Broca in the book really very nicely shows how you can own the woodblock, but Chinese scholars always believe, like, if you are not able to grasp the knowledge, it doesn't help that you read a book, right? That's still not, that doesn't mean that you know it. But it's also a great strategy to disown all those people who don't know how to manipulate words, right, and manipulate namings. And I think the the long arc that you can see uh, to that, for instance, in, in modern Chinese history is the way in which modern China deals with brands or trademarks or the idea of of, uh, having a long history of copyright. So they have to really... Uh, or for, let me let me take the the example of the craftspeople that Annapurna was talking about. There are very few names like of actual very prolific craftsmen, engineer, or, or scientists that we know of. They always disappear in the collective, and it's the literati who define what kind of expertise these people actually have. So whether they are tanners or weavers or reelers or what kind of tasks they're actually performing. So by not naming those people and not allowing their individuality to show, modern China can claim, for instance, uh, a local uh, cultural heritage of, for instance, Jingdezhen porcelain producers or makers, and uh, can do as if this is a commonly shared craft and not... uh, it does not need the attribution to individuals, right? So you make it cultural heritage, but you don't make it part of, for instance, an engineering story, as you would would do that in the German landscape um, uh, through the Prussian um, times when actually in Dresden or elsewhere, people in Meissen started to really 
um, discover and invent new techniques of porcelain. So you see, you have an entirely different history because historians and philosophers and scholars uh, at that point in time were focusing on different ways of manipulating knowledge through their words, through their descriptions, through their documentation. And I wanted to show that and say that, like, look here, if historians then claim that um, China doesn't have ways to own, historical ways to own knowledge or to manipulate it, and it was not part of law, you are missing part of the story. You don't see what actually happened. You don't need laws to manipulate how people can own knowledge. And yeah. that's a story a lot of anthropologists have told as well, right, in the contemporary world. So, but I, I see there is a there is a certain way of thinking about it. And if you don't really break out of these like ways of thinking, then you always end up in the same trap. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I thought that was such a like vivid example of how social practices can, you know, erase specific people, erase specific kinds of expertise um, and knowledge making. Yeah. Um, and so then you wrap up this book with a section on how the work of scholarship itself impacts knowledge and ownership. Um, it legitimizes knowers and turns other people into not knowers. And then you share some tools for analyzing the relationships of ownership and knowledge. Um, and actually, Marius, you referred a little bit at, at the top of this episode to, you know, implications for scholars and scholarship. So I don't know if you want to start off here just sharing with us a little bit more about the tools and ideas you hope readers take away from this book in terms of their own scholarship, but also how they look at existing scholarship or quote unquote knowledge, what is deemed knowledge, um, what you hope this book will add to existing conversations and, and new conversations it might start. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so I think Annapurna is better positioned to uh, answer the question on the last chapter, but uh, my hope for, for, for others to, to uh, take, uh, that they take away from this book, I guess, uh, you know, this is written for a community of, of, of science, technology, uh, SDS scholars, um, that they take this question of ownership more seriously to begin with, in, in, in some cases of the law, but doesn't always have to be the law. So, I mean, I'm not talking about legal history, um, so not about legal doctrine, but rather how legal technologies or technologies of the law actually um, affect and I would say shape also the type of knowledge that is being produced. Uh, so how this knowledge gets legitimized in a rather literal sense. Um, so yeah, that's my hope. It's always good to have hope um, that, that others will, will, will take inspiration and continue with more case studies also along the lines that the ones we propose in the book. Thanks. Annapurna, do you want to add to that and tell us a little more about that concluding chapter? Um, I think, uh, like Dagmar said, you know, you identify the problem, you say, well, naming is not going to do it if you want to understand ownership of knowledge. But there is there are these deep-rooted oppositions that we work with, that somehow when it's in words, there's an abstraction and there's epistemology. But if you're talking about objects and bodies, then it's material, it's social. 
So uh, somehow there is an op opposition. It's almost like material and social cannot be knowledge. They can be sources of knowledge, but you know they they can't be sites of ownership of knowledge. So we have these uh, divisions very much in our head. So what we tried to do in that chapter was say, okay, if we treat words, bodies, objects, all as on on equal terms as kind of instantiations of either ownership or of knowledge or sites of knowledge, then what can we come up with? So naming becomes as material a practice as performance and use. And performance and use generate as much abstraction as naming. And what that gives us, as, and that's what we want to use the chapter for as a tool, is encourage um, scholars to also look at uh, existing uh, material practices and social arrangements as also uh, places where you can mine for uh, understanding knowledge ownership and not just, I mean, so not just alongside the text. So I think that's what that chapter is trying to do. Thanks so much. Dagmar, is there anything you would add there about, you know, what new conversations you hope this starts or how you hope it impacts scholars? I should probably first say like that at least uh, Annapurna and I and sometimes Marius as well were really struggling over this last part and there were two people who helped us a lot, uh, um, uh, Vivek and Jan. Um, Jan. Yeah, who helped us a lot to think that through, right, to give people this tool and at some point I was really mad at Annapurna because she put all these diagrams there and it made it even more complicated <laughs> and then she made it easy again but we had a lot of fun producing them but what I really want to say is I think there is I mean I really want uh, all knowledge workers and I think we all are somehow especially those of us who stand very high right in the hierarchy of uh, of knowledge making scientists historians, sociologists, I want them to realize how much power they actually have and what they are doing sometimes with words. I mean, very often I'm coming from the discipline of history and I hear a lot of colleagues saying like, uh, we have no power. And I think actually we do. We destroy systems and we also keep them up, right? And we make them going and continue even though we are unhappy with them. And I think... Um, alerting us all to this fact and really saying like look we could do it really differently there are like there's a real there's a huge impact with the work we are doing uh being a librarian being a scientist being whatever position you're actually in because our modern world is like fun like knowledge is so important to it right it's really driving our economy our societies and our cultures we understand ourselves as these knowledge workers and I want them to be very careful with that. And I want them to really seriously think that through what they're doing and then be very conscientious with like uh, what they are doing. Because I think, I think in the um, production of that book and we had a lot of people challenging us with like, but this is not an ownable or this is not an ownable and there is no conditioning really going on. And I would like to challenge everybody who's reading that book and saying, like, if you can show us one thing where you're not really conditioning the one with the other, like, uh, 
I'll buy you a vacation in a wonderful island, a tropical island for the next four weeks. I'm pretty sure you can't convince us that there is a case where this is not actually happening. Where you're not really, if you look carefully, you see how if you define an ownable, that you own the bike, yeah, and therefore you are able to learn how to cycle, right? Or therefore you cannot cycle, right? So you can decide what you're doing. This this relationship, if you that's it's not, it's always like this. And that we can overlook something so simple in our modern world that we can overlook that and do as if inequality is not caused by fragmenting one from the other, I find an amazing historical development, really amazing. Because in the end, if you really realize that, I think I'm, <laughs> I look back and I think like, how could I ever have believed that like defining different kinds of knowledges will get us out of this trap? right will get us like make it the word more equal how how did i ever believe that and that i that i hope people really take from the book when they read it that they have uh, the yeah. power to influence that mm -hmm. absolutely and i think i mean it really resonates with me your comment that it's important for us to all recognize the power we have as knowledge workers in the way we identify these things or not i think we see that a lot in the spaces I am usually in, in libraries and archives. And sometimes we think that there's no ownership and so we don't label it, but that leaves space for other other folks to to take that ownership, to take that power, to create these inequalities. Um, and I think you laid out a lot of ways for like examining those, those scenarios that I found really helpful. Yeah, thank you. And I think there is also this whole question, right? I'm in, a, I'm, I'm, I'm working in a, like science-based institutions. So the Max Planck Society mainly consists of people who are scientists who do cutting edge research. And then we're having these debates on open data and open sciences. And you realize how difficult it is to make, to make clear to people that openness at the same time conditions that some people get not rewarded for, for what they know, right? It's an inequality instrument. And uh, I, I hope that if people read that, then they, they realize what they're actually doing. Right. And we can have like more nuanced ways for talking about things and recognizing all the everyone who's connected um, to different kinds of knowledge. Yeah. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love if you could each share what you're working on next, if you have other projects that come out of this book, um, or anything completely new you're working on now that maybe you have time, <laughs> this book is wrapped up. Um, Annapurna, do you want to start? Um, yeah, so we've already done, um, so we've been working on this book for a really long time, and uh, in the sense that to 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 get across what we really wanted to say, <laughs> Dagmar made me rewrite stuff like nine, ten times and then rewrote it herself. <laughs> she said, don't mess with my golden words <laughs> and go back to the version and see something completely different. And this is what happened. And but it was very enjoyable. And um I think so following that, we um we had a conference last May in, in Berlin uh, for two weeks. 
where we brought, uh, where uh, Dagmar basically helped us organize a conference where handloom weavers from India and potters from um, from Brazil and uh, gardeners and linguists from um, Papua New Guinea came along with scholars. And there was a conversation. We, we were able to kind of find a kind of an intermediate language through following each other's practices. So there was a spinning workshop and there was a, a cooking workshop. And so we slowly managed to start talking to each other. So I think that what this gives is um, that it allows us to take a step back from what feels like a very overwhelming, um, uh, you know, dominant idea of knowledge ownership with science and law. And what I particularly like about our book is that it's clearly a problem even for those people within science and law. This is not a problem only for those people who are operating outside. So while I might be using it more in that space, what is really exciting is that there, there isn't that kind of thing that, okay, this works for science and law, but it, it doesn't work for you other guys, but that's fine. It's not like that. It's really a problem for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think gives like more of a common ground for working together. Yeah. Um, Marius, anything new on your plate that you're looking forward to working on now? New. Well, yes. Um, since uh, a year, I started an um, um, ERC project at the University of Oslo, which is called Before Copyright, and it studies um, the history of printing privileges in early modern Europe. So these were exclusive rights for the production of uh, books, engravings, um, maps, and such like. And this project, um, well, it relates very much to the book. Um, it, it studies the way in which these rights impacted the type of knowledge that was uh, put into circulation. So we're looking as a team of about six people uh, at um, the state actors who were involved, um, who got the rights, who did not get the rights, for what type of things that they get, for what did they not get the rights, etc. And also, what is the importance of all this for the status of the author? Because eventually, that is how we nowadays define copyright is through um, the, the function of the author. Um, but what happened before that, and what were the alternative pathways also that could have been taken, but were so far perhaps not studied. Um, so that's the project I'm busy with now. Uh, we started last year and still what, uh, four more years to go. So that's the, <laughs> probably what I'll be doing <laughs> for the next period of time. Yeah, sounds like you'll be busy. Dagmar, do you want to share with us what you're working on now? Yeah, it's, I make it very short. Uh, actually, uh, with Annapurna together, we started a, a project of getting other people involved into this idea of knownable and ownable. So to bring it to NGOs, to discuss it with uh, legal specialists or with people who do innovation studies. So that uh, project will have a follow up. And I hope we can also think more about like, what are other communities of uh, or other ways of thinking about the knownable and ownable that you can think about in the future? And on the side, I'm trying for a long time already to finish a book on comparison in history and how you probably have to rethink the narrativity of the 19th century and uh, what it would mean to do an asynchronous comparison in history. That's That's the next book project I'm having. It's developing slowly. <laughs> Sounds like a great project. Um, well, thank you all so much for chatting today. 
once again, I've been speaking with the editors of Ownership of Knowledge Beyond Intellectual Property, published by MIT Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network.